Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. We're glad you are joining us today on this Tuesday afternoon. And we're going to be talking about a few topics today. Uh, but before we do, I just want to remind everybody, um, if you're coming in on the YouTube channel, there is a delay. And last week, in fact, we had some not only delays, but some interruptions with the YouTube service. And I think we also noticed a little bit on Facebook a couple of times. So if you're coming in on YouTube and you're noticing a problem or issues and the delay is too much, come on over to BibleQuest.tv, click on the Tuesday button, and come right into the program through the uh, Zoom app, which you get when you click on the Tuesday button. And um, let's see. Yeah, before we get into the topics, let me bring everybody on board. Jeff is here in somewhat form. I know you're not feeling well, so if there's any sneezing going on, we're going to blame Jeff. How are you doing, Jeff? Well, you just told him. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay, Scott, uh, we know you're out of town, Scott. you got a brick wall behind you. Where are you at, Scott? I'm at York Hospital. Okay, you're visiting with someone over there going through some procedures. Glad you're able to get an internet connection and join us over there. And if you have to run, let us know. We'll, okay. We'll excuse you. Stephen, you're down there in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Over there in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Good to see you, Stephen. Good to see you too, Drew. Welcome, everybody. Yeah. And Jonathan down in Gettysburg. Jonathan, really glad you're here with us today as well. And Jonathan is playing the double role of panelist, right? Uh, yeah, it looks like it today. <laughs> Jumping in. And also uh, monitoring our comments and questions coming in from the viewers. Really glad you're here today. We're going to start off. Well, before I do, I didn't mention this to you guys for a week. I was going to say this. I didn't mention to you I was going to say it. But we got a couple of questions that just came in yesterday through the um, website. And we're going to put them on hold. So if you're watching the program and you're hoping that we got to your questions today about what you asked yesterday, I apologize for that. But we have a few things on the plate we need to talk about and work on. And then we're going to get to those prop, those questions hopefully next week. So tune in next week. And if you're watching us or listening to us through the podcast, which means you're probably watching this after it's been recorded, we invite you, a podcast listener, to go to the website, BibleQuest.tv, and fill out the form on the homepage with your questions. We want to hear from you as well so we can address your, type, your questions as they come in. Okay, so we have a question. Um, well, I have a question. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 26, and apparently uh, Paul's been in jail, prison for about two years by this time in Caesarea. He was accused of um, violating or, or contaminating the temple back there in Jerusalem, sneaking uh, the Roman authorities, sneaking him out, got him over here to Caesarea. He's now appearing before, let's see, King Agrippa, right, Stephen? Yeah, that's right. So uh, Paul's had uh, quite the time uh, since he was uh, arrested in the temple. And um, here, back in Acts 25, uh, we're actually at the end of Acts 24, um, it says, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. It's easy for us to read right over that, but Paul has been in prison in Caesarea now for over two years. And uh, Festus is the one who has now taken um, the reins. Um, and uh, he has uh, been left in prison for all this. Now Agrippa comes to Caesarea in Acts 25 and verse 13. 
Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And uh, so Festus has Paul in his hands, and he's a little at a loss for what to do. Um, And so if you skip down to Acts 25, verse 26, uh, he says, Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. (laughs) So uh, probably as much to save his own face as anything. uh, He says, Agrippa, why don't you talk to Paul? Um, And so uh, Paul is given the opportunity to make his defense before King Agrippa here in Acts chapter 26. Politics, right, Stephen? That is absolutely right. Um, So uh, let's get into the text. Uh, Acts 26, starting in verse 1. Uh, So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So Paul's accusers are unbelieving Jews. Remember, Paul himself is a Jew. Uh, His accusers are unbelieving Jews. And really, the central issue is the resurrection of Jesus, because if Jesus was raised from the dead, he's the Messiah. And the unbelieving Jews don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, and they resent any Jews who are saying Jesus is the Messiah. Well, that's, that's what Paul is saying. There's, there's something, of course, the specific reason he's in, in prison, you've already mentioned, Stephen, he was accused of taking a Gentile into the temple in Jerusalem, and that's what has immediately led to his imprisonment. In verse 4, there's some indication about Paul's notoriety. He was fairly well known, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. People knew, I mean, from the very beginning, that uh, he was vehemently opposed uh, before his conversion uh, to Jesus of Nazareth. He'll talk more about that in just a minute. And um, he was, you know, rising above many of his contemporaries uh, in his uh, um, Jewish studies, things like that. And then, of course, overnight, he becomes a Christian. And, and, then, uh, and then in verse 5, he's reflecting upon his time before he was a Christian He talks about he lived, according to the strictest sect of the Jewish religion, as a Pharisee. It'd be good, I think, if we talked a little bit about what was a Pharisee, and then how valuable does Paul now count being a Pharisee? And then finally, think in terms of today, when people identify themselves uh, after this sect or that sect, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Lutheran, Uh, how valuable that is. So what's a Pharisee? Start there. Well, Paul talks uh, more about his background in Philippians chapter 3, and it might be a helpful passage to talk about. Um, 
he says uh, in verse 4, Philippians 3, verse 4, um, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Um, so Paul describes his previous life in Judaism in a lot of different ways here, a Hebrew of Hebrews, um, as to the law, a Pharisee gives us some insight into kind of what the Pharisees were known for. Uh, they were very strict. It, that's exactly what Paul said there in Acts 26. We just read it um, uh, where he says, um, according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Um, and so the Pharisees had taken the law of Moses and had even what, as they say, built a hedge around it. Um, they had their traditions and their commandments. They had kind of added as a, a safeguard in their minds, at least initially, but had come to really bind even those things um, as if they were commandments of God. And Jesus has many run-ins with the Pharisees where he condemns that practice and says, you can't teach as doctrines, the, the traditions of men. Uh if you look at several of the statements that Jesus says about Pharisees, it starts putting together a picture. Um, in Luke eighteen nine, Jesus portrayed the Pharisee and the publican praying. And you remember the Pharisee's prayer? He's just bragging about how good he is and how thankful that he's better than everybody else. Luke introduced that in Luke 18, verse 9, with this statement. He spoke this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and set all others if not. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, it also mentions there were lovers of money. Matthew 23, Jesus repeatedly called them hypocrites, all their works they did to be seen as men. Uh, he gave the two in. And you're breaking up, Scott, but to pick a, picking up on your point about the Pharisees' tendency to, to value their, their status as a Pharisee as the basis for their righteousness, Paul is contrasting that in Philippians 3 when he's making the point, righteousness is not in being a Pharisee. Righteousness is in Christ. Righteousness is not not in circumcision. Righteousness is in Christ. And so after he mentions all those things that he was, including a Pharisee, he says in Philippians 3, verse 7, howbeit what things were gained to me, these have I counted loss for Christ. So maybe it would be helpful for us to think a little bit today about people who identify themselves as of this religion or that religion, this denomination or that denomination. I have a a friend who is Amish, and he was telling me what the significance of keeping the Amish rules is. And he said, well, his father explained to to him this way. If we didn't follow these rules, pretty soon there wouldn't be any more Amish. So it was about being Amish. Is righteousness in being Amish? Is righteousness in being a Pharisee? Is righteousness in being a Baptist? Where's righteousness? It's in Christ. Um, And he says specifically down in uh, verse 9, Philippians 3, verse 9, he wants to be found in Christ, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
Scott, you were breaking up a minute ago there. Have we got you back where if, if you wanted to finish up something you were saying? Uh, I don't think we have a real good connection. Frozen, yeah. In Acts 26, 6, after he talks about this, he, so he said so far, you know, everybody knows how I was raised. Everybody knows how I've conducted myself in, in the Jewish religion. Everybody knows I was a Pharisee. Um, but then he says in verse 6, I stand here to be judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. What does he mean by our fathers? We, we heard him a little bit. We heard you, Scott. Not much. Not much. You're breaking up, Scott. I, what did, I could see me and all of y'all were frozen. I think my signal's bad, so I'll just back out because I'm I, the connection here at the hospital is going to be good. You're so right. Go ahead. Okay, so what does he mean when he says in verse 6, the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers? Who are the fathers? And then what does that tell us about something that Jews and Christians have in common, or at least those who are truly, who were truly servants of God under the old covenant and under the new covenant? Well, I mean, the fathers would have been the the fathers of the Jewish nation, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those guys um, who, of course, the Jews are physical descendants of them. And there's a real sense in which they were their fathers, uh, but there are several places in the New Testament where it talks about all who are in Christ are sons of Abraham, uh, heirs according to promise, Galatians, Romans. Um, and so the, the line that he draws here is that, uh, and this is why some people call it, you know, Judeo-Christian type stuff, is that Judaism and Christianity uh, flow, one flows out of the other, that really it's one continuous line of God's work in the world. Um, he started out with the Jews under the Mosaic Covenant. And now there is a distinction uh, between the Old Covenant to the nation of the Jews and now the New Covenant to Jews or Gentiles, all who put their faith in Christ. But he views it here as just, just one big thing uh, that uh, the way he puts it, um, all right, I'm so on trial because of my hope and the promise made to God by our fathers. So let's talk about what that hope is in just a minute. But, but before we go there, if you think about the way people today view this, the, the uh, different religions of the world, they think there's Judaism and there's Christianity. And those are two different, even competing, even rivaling religions in the minds of many people. And you could point to, to this episode in Paul's life and you could say Paul's a Christian and the people who have accused him are Jews. So there's Jews against Christians. But Paul is not viewing it that way. Paul was a Jew, and he is a Christian, and he is making that uh, connection between the hope he had before he was a Christian and the hope he has as a Christian. And uh, so what is that hope? The resurrection of the dead. Um, he'll conclude this section by saying, you know, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? That would, that, that would be incredible. That would be a statement today people would be making. Why do you think it's, why do you think it's incredible that God raises the dead? Well, most people don't believe God raises the dead. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, and let's get to that idea of, of the idea of it being incredible in just a minute. But before we go there, um, uh, this idea, I now I forgot where I was going here. We were talking about, oh, yes, the idea of, of Paul. He's a Jew who's become a Christian, but he 
there's this same hope. Uh, did the Jews in the Old Testament aspire to resurrection from the dead? Did the Jews believe in resurrection from the dead? Only at the final day, though. And well, actually, the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection from the dead. Sadducees did not. Pharisees did. We're talking about two different sects within Judaism. Think back to the Old Testament. Were there resurrections from the dead in the Old Testament? Yes. And think back to David. Did David say anything that indicated a conviction uh, in resurrection from the dead at the at the last day? Yeah, Psalm 16. And then even you can go as far back as, as Abraham. What well, doesn't stay in the story with Abraham um, when you read the account in Genesis um, with Isaac, but when you go over to Hebrews, Hebrews 11, one of the things that Abraham is commended for in his faith is believing that God could raise Isaac from the dead. And I'll flip over there really quick just so I don't misquote it, but in Hebrews 11, uh, in verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he had received the promises, uh, whom whom he, uh, excuse me, and he who had received the promises that it was an act of offering up only his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall all of your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So even as far back as Abraham, who was called the father of the Jews, who they identified were Abraham's children, Abraham's offspring. Right, and I think that's news to a lot of people, that 1,800 years before Jesus, before there even was a nation of Israel, the father of the Jews, the father of Israel, had this concept of God's ability to raise the dead. Uh, You mentioned Psalm 16, Stephen. Both Psalm 16 and Psalm 17 by David indicate his conviction and resurrection from the dead, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the last verse of Psalm 17, many people see as a reference to the resurrection um, also interesting in John 11, uh, when Jesus comes to raise Lazarus from the dead, um, and uh, Martha says, you know, if you've been here, my brother would not have died. Uh, Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Uh, in John eleven twenty four, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And of course, Jesus' response says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so that right there is, is the key. The, the idea of resurrection was not new, but Jesus comes saying he is the resurrection. He is the one who conquers death uh, when he is raised from the dead after his crucifixion and that gives assurance that, that his, those who are in Christ can be raised from the dead. So there was a hope that the Jews had, and that hope can be realized in, in their Messiah, Jesus, the Christ. And the followers of Christ are Christians. And now not only Jews, but also Gentiles can, can be a part of this. But it, it's, as you said earlier, Stephen, it's, it's a common theme going back from Old Testament times and following through to the New Testament time. So, so Christ is really the fulfillment of the Jewish law. He is the realization of the aspirations of God's people in ancient times. I think that makes sense. Then we get to verse 8. Why is it judged incredible with you? Paul asks the king, if God does raise the dead. On the face of it, if you walk up to somebody just on the street, somebody who's uh, not particularly religious or whatever, does does resurrection seem incredible? Yeah. And yet Paul puts this question as a rhetorical question, you know, as as if you sh- it, it shouldn't seem incredible. That, why, why would it seem incredible to you that God raises the dead? Um, just if we pause just for a moment and think about 
our existence, is there anybody on earth who can, I know there's evolution. <laughs> and to me, the, the idea that we've evolved from one cell beings through a gradual process of natural selection doesn't make any sense. But I can tell you this, even if somebody says, oh yeah, that makes sense to me. He's never seen it. The fact is the very, the fact that we exist is evidence that something at some time has happened that no man on earth has ever seen and no man on earth can thoroughly, rationally give a, a complete explanation as to how it happened. And so our very existence tells us that if we're rational beings, we have to believe that something can happen or has happened or there are things that happen that we cannot explain from our own experience. And so then in that context, why should it seem incredible? If I believe there is a God, why should it seem incredible if God raises the dead? Well, yeah. Jeff, what, uh, you just got me thinking there because you said no one has ever seen, from the evolutionary point of view, any laboratory experiments or seen the original life from nothing event. On the other hand, has anyone ever seen someone rising from the dead? No, not not anybody alive today. Has any human being ever? Well, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. This is interesting because when it comes to resurrection from the dead, we actually have more evidence for that than we do for some of the things people put their faith in in terms of evolution today because we have a record of people who did see it. It's an incredible record. And that's a question to you guys. Is it a credible record? What is it in the Bible that makes the claim that Jesus was raised from the dead credible? Well, one of them is what we're talking about this afternoon, that, that Paul was one of the witnesses to that, considering his background and, and being what he's going to get into here in, in just a second in, in the following verses, especially verse 9, 9 through 11, of what his original stance on the resurrection, specifically of Jesus' resurrection was. And when he would write to, for example, the Corinthians and, 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 and insist upon not only the resurrection of Jesus, but that we can be raised from the dead, he started by reminding them of what they knew, that Jesus was raised from the dead. And he, he drives home the point saying he appeared, Jesus appeared after he was raised to how many people? Over 500 at one time. And, and he says, the, um, some of whom are still alive. Why does he say that? In fact, didn't he say more than half are alive or most of them are alive? Yeah, and why does he say that? You can go check it out. That's right. It's something that can be verified. All right, then we come to Acts 26 and verse 9, and Paul begins to explain where he had come from, what he thought before he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he says, I barely thought with myself that I ought to do many things uh, contrary to the name of Jesus. Did Paul think what he was doing was right when he was persecuting Christians? Oh, yeah. He thought that uh, the Christians were blaspheming uh, God. Yeah, and back in Acts 23, verse 1, he says, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Uh, he was convinced that Jesus was a false Messiah, uh, that he had blasphemed against God. And so uh, Paul was in agreement with uh, the, putting Jesus, Jesus had been put to death and he wanted his followers as well uh, to be put to death. So then mm -hmm. if I think I am right, am I justified? No, didn't make him right. 
I may think, I may sincerely think I'm doing the right thing, but I can still be condemned. I can still be held accountable. <laughs> Thinking I'm right doesn't make me right. Then we come to verse 10, and Paul gives some details about the extent of his opposition to Jesus. Take us through that, verses 10 and 11, somebody. I'll read that. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So, go ahead. This is exactly what we see Paul doing in the book of Acts, particularly in uh, chapter eight after the death of Stephen. He approves of the stoning of Stephen and then uh, is entering house after house, dragging people off to prison. It describes him as breathing threats and murder against the church there in the beginning of Acts chapter eight. So Mm -hmm. this goes back to Jonathan, the point you were making. We're listening to the testimony of of a man who was on the opposite side uh, of Christianity. He was opposing Christianity and now he is willing to give his life as an advocate of Christianity. What changed him? And we'll see that starting in verse 12. So maybe one of you guys can take us through verses 12 down through, um, oh, verse 15. Okay, I got it. It says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and creation of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven bright brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when he had fallen to the ground, I, uh, when he had fallen, I had heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Where'd you want to stop? That right there. So when he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, just think about from Paul's point of view, he is, fervently opposing Christianity, violently opposing Christianity. Manifestly, he must not have believed Jesus was the Christ. Obviously, he must not have believed Jesus was raised from the dead. He must not have believed Jesus was alive, or he would have believed that Jesus was raised from the dead, and he would have believed Jesus was the Christ, and he would not be opposing Christianity. Remember, the Old Testament Jews were looking for a Messiah. Paul was too. And he was an Old Testament Jew looking for the Messiah. Christ means Messiah. That's what it is. The question was, is Christ, is Jesus the Messiah? Is Jesus the Christ? Paul didn't believe so. And now all of a sudden he's confronted with the living Jesus, which leads him to the conclusion Jesus was raised from the dead. Therefore, Jesus is the Christ. Did did that make him a saved person coming to that realization? No, not at all. How do we know that? Well, he prayed and fasted for three days, and then Ananias down there. Wait, wait, let, let's but pause there. You're right. You're in Acts 9. He right. prayed and fasted for three days after this. And obviously, if you come to realize you've been persecuting the Messiah and his followers, then you'd be begging for forgiveness. Did his praying and fasting make him a saved person? Apparently not, because there's more to that story. And what was it? Ananias was told in a vision to go see Paul, to go to him. Of course, Ananias was like, whoa, I don't want to go to this guy. I mean, he's killing everybody. And the Lord said, no, you're going to go talk to him, and you're going to tell him how he's going to suffer. I'm paraphrasing. How he's going to suffer in the mission that I'm going to give him. 
And so Ananias goes, to, or he goes, ends up getting and finding Ananias. And after Ananias tells him everything that the Lord told him, he says to, to Paul, after three days of praying and fasting, what are you waiting for? Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Yeah, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Baptism, Paul himself in the book of Romans connects baptism with Jesus' death. Jesus was buried and raised. When we're baptized, we're buried in the water and raised. And that's the act that God has given us to carry out, whereby God connects us with the death of Jesus so that his death is the punishment for our sins. And that's the point at which we can be free from our sins. And so Paul did that. But here Paul goes on and he explains some more about what Jesus told him uh, when Jesus first appeared to him. And so let's pick up the reading in verse 16 and read verses 16 and 17 and talk about the mission that Jesus had in mind for this man who had been persecuting the followers of Jesus. Really, really quick before we do that, I think it's interesting what you were saying. It's funny, you consider where Paul came from. One of the, the primary influences that Paul mentions is Gamaliel, who was also a well-known Jew. And when Gamaliel is bringing up different um, maybe we call them different sects or things that were coming out of, of Judaism. Uh, he mentions two people that were, that were responsible for that. And so he mentions uh, Thutis and Judas um, back in Acts chapter five. Right. And one of the interesting things that even Gamaliel realizes that kind of discredits their following um, in, in Acts chapter five and verse 36, he says, before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of, uh, and a number of men, about 4,000 joined him and he was killed. And all those who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And similar Judas, the Galilean rose up, uh, in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished and all those who followed him were scattered. And so one of the key attributes of those two, those two men that they're following dispersed is they died (laughs) and then everyone following them kind of dispersed. But then when Gamaliel mentions Christianity, he doesn't bring up Jesus died. So this is going to disperse. He says, you need to be careful (laughs) to get out of the way of that. um, Right, right. And and from Paul's perspective, you can see if they've had these various guys come along and let on that maybe they are the Messiah and they're not, they're phonies. If you're a devout Jew, a follower of God's word revealed through Moses, and you're looking for the true Messiah, then these frauds that come along, they are going to be someone you are going to oppose. And in Saul's mind, who becomes the Apostle Paul, Jesus is just another guy like one of these guys. Mm-hmm. And, and he had seen their movements come to an end, and now he's seen Jesus. He's aware Jesus has been killed. And, and so Paul's trying to make sure his movement comes to an end. Mm-hmm. But now Jesus has appeared to Paul. Yeah. So that, mm-hmm. that makes it different. All right. Then verses 16 and 17 where Paul tells us the further instructions when Jesus first appeared to him, he gave him further instructions about the mission Jesus had in mind for Paul. Acts 26, starting verse 16, uh, well, starting verse 15, uh, I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you 
to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This idea of being a witness, um, first of all, Jesus, and and that doesn't just mean somebody who goes about preaching. Jesus has appeared to Paul. So Paul sees Jesus. So Paul can go about and he can say, hey, I'm an eyewitness. Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, we, we call Paul the Apostle Paul. What's, what's the connection between being an apostle and being a witness? Well, we know from, for instance, Acts chapter 1, that when they were trying to replace Judas, who had committed suicide, uh, <coughs> they say, we need someone who's an eyewitness. <laughs> uh, we need someone who's seen the risen Lord. Um, and Paul will say something similar in first Corinthians nine. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Um, so for him to be one who is sent out, that's what the word apostle means. Um, he has to be a witness of the risen Jesus. And that's exactly what happened on the road to Damascus is he sees the risen Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and so then, so Paul is now, he's been equipped to be an apostle. Even before he's had his sins washed away, he's been given that opportunity to see Jesus so that he'll be able to go out and be this effective apostle. And he can say, I'm an eyewitness. And to whom is it that Jesus has uh, in mind Paul going? That was a convoluted question. Jesus has in mind sending Paul to whom? The Gentiles. So Paul will uh, identify himself as an apostle of the Gentiles or of the (laughs) uncircumcision in Galatians chapter 2. And uh, so that's, uh, we see Paul preaching amongst the Jews, but we especially see Paul's work in spreading the gospel amongst the Gentiles. Because now in Jesus Christ, it's not just the biological descendants of Abraham who can uh, be God's people. Gentiles also can be God's people. And somebody mentioned earlier that uh, Abraham's children are defined as those who are uh, children of Abraham spiritually by faith, whether Jew or Gentile. Did one of you mention that earlier? Uh, no. Yes, we, we talked about that in just referenced in Galatians and Romans. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So then we come down to verse 19. Paul has, has given the story. Here's who I was. I was persecuting the followers of Christ. Then I saw Jesus alive and, and, and I was sent to be a messenger to the Gentiles And now he's told all that story, so he turns his attention back to the King Agrippa and says, so I did it. So let's get verses 19 through 23. So it says, uh, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and also to the Gentiles. So again, you see this continuity from the Old Testament to the New, this continuity from the law of Moses to Christianity. 
He says, I stand unto this day testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses did say should come. Moses and the prophets spoke of the coming Christ. Today, when people think of Judaism as against Christianity or Christianity as against Judaism, they don't get it. Moses and the prophets were pointing to the Christ. That's what he says here. I'm saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses did say should come. How that the Christ, what does Christ mean? Messiah. The anointed one, the Messiah. The anointed one, the Messiah. How that the Christ must suffer and how that he first by the resurrection of the dead should proclaim light both to the people and to the Gentiles. So to the people here would be the people of Israel, the Jewish people, but also to the Gentiles. All right, so what is Festus? He's the governor. He's the, the, he's, uh, the one who has custody of Paul. Uh, what's his reaction in verse 24? You're insane, Paul. Mm-hmm. He says, yeah. says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. So, so it's interesting. We see a couple of things about Paul. One, he was respected as somebody who was well-learned. He was mm-hmm. not, you know, just some ignorant, somebody who believed in fables. But secondly, Festus is not buying it. So our God's people, our people who profess Christianity, our people who claim that Jesus was raised from the dead, sometimes going to be viewed as mad or insane or out of their minds. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Always, but but he comes back. Does he come back angrily? Does he come back defensively? Does he come back, how dare you say things like that about me? How does he come back? Yeah, with gentleness and respect. (laughs) He says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Uh, You know, I, I like how he says that, you know, listen, I'm talking about things that are on public record. Uh, you know about these things. Uh, this has not been done privately. Um, and and so he is reasoning with Festus, trying to get him to understand the things about which he knows Festus already knows. And and it's interesting. That's how he introduced this whole thing back in verse three. Uh, he says, I'm happy that, you know, it's fortunate that I'm making my defense for you because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Yeah. Uh, he hasn't brought up anything that Festus is like, Oh, whoa, like I've never heard that before. Um, yeah. He's, he's putting the pieces together for Festus and Festus is resisting. And he's especially turned his attention to King Agrippa here in verse 26. Oh, yes. These things. And, and, also, and I like your, yeah, go ahead, Drew. And notice what he says too. He, he, like you said, Stephen, he, he, he's polite, respectful, and then he turns it around on him and he says that in verse 27, you believe the prophets, right? I know you believe the prophets. Yeah, yeah. So here's what the prophets were pointing to. And I like your emphasis on, on the last part of verse 26 when he says, this has not been done in the corner. He's, he's, here he's turned his attention to King Agrippa. Now, Festus and Agrippa, these are people, these are not made up people, <laughs> people known other than just from the Bible. They're known from secular history. Paul is here standing before them, and he says, you know what I'm talking about. These things were not done in a corner. And and Agrippa nor Festus say, wait a minute, Paul, we've never heard of any of this. You've made all this up. They didn't say that. So what you have here is an evidence, is an indication, the facts of Jesus' life and death. And 
and reported resurrection, those were things that were known. Paul hadn't believed it until he saw Jesus himself. Now he believes it, and he's trying to help Agrippa see, you know what? Jesus is our hope for resurrection, not just for Jews, but also for Gentiles. And what's Agrippa's reaction in verse 28? In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? I don't know what, which way to take this. What are the different interpretations of Agrippa's words here? Could be sarcastic. Yeah. And I think that the, the King James originally had, you know, um, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, there's actually a song that's come from that almost persuaded and, uh, you know, of like, oh, you, you almost got me, you know. Um, maybe that's the idea. Uh, more modern translations uh, translate it more of, uh, would you, are you trying to get me to convert in such a short time? Like, so instead of the almost, it's got it in a short time. Um, like, wow, that's really trying to get me to be converted that quickly. It is interesting, though, in the next verse, verse 29, Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Yeah. So just just take a quick poll. I don't know which way Agrippa meant it. Drew, what do you think? Was, Drew, was Agrippa really saying, you've almost convinced me? Or was he being sarcastic and saying, you think you can convince me with just a few words? What do you think? I think he's he's being uh, sarcastic. I, I, it's just my opinion. What do you think, Jonathan? Uh, I think based on Paul's response to to Agrippa's statement, I think that he's he's just kind of being sarcastic, saying that that it's uh, that's not enough time. Are you trying to convince me in such a short amount of time to become a Christian, Stephen? What do you think? I, I see a little more sincerity in Agrippa. Um, Agrippa said to Paul, "In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian?" Uh, Agrippa knows about these things. I think his conscience has been pricked. But either way, he doesn't chime in with Festus. Remember, Agrippa is the one who has more knowledge about these things. He doesn't chime in with Festus and say, Paul, you're mad. You're nuts. He, he, he understands what Paul is talking about is factually based. Mm-hmm. So we get to verse 30, and at the end of all of this, the king, that'd be Agrippa, rises up, and the governor, that'd be Festus, and Bernice, and uh, that was, if I remember right, both Agrippa's sister and wife. Is that right? I may be fuzzy on my history there. Uh, but in any event, uh, they get up, and when they'd withdrawn, they spoke one to another, saying, you know, this man does nothing worthy of death or, or bonds. He, he's, he's not done anything that really justifies him being a prisoner even, let alone being put to death. And Agrippa says to Festus, well, he might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. Back earlier, Paul had found it necessary to make his appeal to Caesar, lest Festus deliver him over to the Jews. Uh, you know, but now, now that it's politically out of their hands, it's easy for them to say, you know, really, Paul hadn't done anything wrong. If they'd come to that conclusion earlier and let him go, then they'd have been responsible. But now that Paul has appealed to Caesar, they can say, it's out of our hands. We've got to send him to Caesar. But, you know, really, he hasn't done anything wrong. It had to play out that way because that's where Paul wanted to end up, and the Lord was working it out, wasn't he? Taking him to Rome. That's right. Paul yeah. had intended to go to Rome, just not this way. Exactly. Yeah, and that, that is interesting because I've always feel sad for Paul at the end of this chapter in a way like, oh, man, like he, he could have not, you know, why did he have to open his mouth and appeal to Caesar? But the thing is the Lord's working through all of these events, and sometimes our life doesn't work out the way that we thought it would. 
But if our life can still bring honor and glory to God one way or another, um, then we're still accomplishing our purpose. Okay, so folks, that's Acts chapter 26. What happens after this is Paul does go to Rome. And uh, while in Rome, he writes some of the, probably while in Rome, he writes some of the letters of the New Testament, the Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and Philemon. And um, then after that, really what becomes of Paul seems to be, it's not clearly detailed in biblical history, secular history, or, or not secular, but non-biblical history would suggest that he was freed and then imprisoned again later on before being put to death. And in between those times wrote first and second Timothy and Titus. Back, back to the, my, my thought on the circumstances of the providence that's going on. When he wrote to the Philippians, I think it was in Philippians where he said, all of this has happened. All of these events in his life has happened to bring him to this point, paraphrasing, so that the gospel we heard even among the guard in the, in the, in the Roman guard. That's right. Wherever Paul is, he's going to be preaching the gospel. Yep. And they're also, okay, guys, I think that's it. Yeah, we are at the end of our time slot here. I want to thank you for uh, your participation and, and uh, putting all the, and, and Jeff, I'm really glad you were able to hang in there. You're cold and I didn't hear you sneezing once during this. I kept hit, hitting the mute button on my mic. Excellent. That's why I hit it here. That's good. And poor Scott. He had so much problems. He had to actually bail out. He was just not making the connection. All right, gentlemen, good to see you all. We look forward to seeing you next week. And everybody in the audience, uh, go to the website, BibleQuest.tv. Put in some questions, comments, so we can talk more about biblical things. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a great week.